brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Welcome to Soft Rep Radio. On time, on target. It's Big Phil Campion, former D Squadron, 22 SAS. I'm doing a bit of a stand-in job, and I've got three subjects that you might be interested in. UK SAS, what it takes to become a trooper. How do you pass selection? UK EDC, we can't carry too much gear over here. So have a look at what we can do to make ourselves as safe as possible on our streets. And finally, a trip around the ranges in Europe. Where can I actually use a gun and where can't I? Here in the UK, we like to think our Special Forces selection is the toughest in the world. Now, I know there's a few of you over the pond will probably disagree with that slightly, but I've got to tell you, it was our idea. David Sterling, 1940-odd, he came up with the Special Forces concept and the selection process has been more or less the same ever since. With an average turnout of, say, 300 people, the pass rate is as low there's five, six, and possibly up as many as ten. It's not the easiest course in the world. Special Forces selection processes are based on what we do. First thing David Sterling did when he wanted to identify what sort of soldiers he needed for this elite regiment was write an ethos. There's four parts to the ethos, and I'm going to go through them with you now. Number one, an unrelented pursuit of excellence. Each man needs to strive to attain the best levels in everything he does all the time. It's no good just resting on your laurels. Every man needs to be prepared to go that little bit further. And that is something he has to take with him to his grave. The thing that Sterling identified was that the soldiers must have the highest standards of self-discipline. Self-discipline is everything for a soldier. If you can't be trusted to get on and do what you're supposed to do, on your own, with no fuss, you're of no use to a squadron. Only you know sometimes if you've done the best you can. So the only person you can truly lie to is yourself. And that's why self-discipline is so important. We only want, as special forces, operators we can rely on 100 and million percent. Created a classless but not rankless society. That's to say, we need rank, we need structure, we're in the army. Everybody knows that, the boss is the boss, the team leader is the team leader. But what we do have is an ability to listen to everybody. So the lowest of the low, the humblest trooper who's just passed selection, he might be the one who has all the right ideas. Listen to everybody. Sterling knew that in small teams, you have to listen to everybody within that team. Because if you don't, you might just miss something. Final qualities were humility and humour. Now, I've always been taught that you can judge a man by the way he treats somebody who can do nothing for him. That is to say... That somebody who's looking for the DS solution, somebody who's trying to impress, ultimately probably isn't trying to do that all the time. So you can judge a man extremely well 
by how he treats people who can do nothing for him. That's an important thing to remember. And the other thing, of course, in that sentence is humility and humour. Humour is extremely important. It will get you through so much. Having a sense of humour will calm situations down. Being able to laugh at your own mistakes, being able to recognise them and not get too excited and upset is an extremely important quality. But in reality, before you turn up, before you even show your face on camp, you'll have done some pre-training. Now, the advice that goes with the pre-training is simple. Don't overdo it. Too many guys I see go absolutely mad, running up and down the mountains, loads of kit on, they're picking up stupid little injuries, they're knocking toenails off, they're chafing the skin off their backs, and all for what? Because when you get on selection, they're going to take you through all that pain and misery anyway. So the best you can do is just keep yourself battle fit at a good standard, and then you don't have to worry too much. Some of the other exercises I did involved stuff that wasn't going to do my joints too much. So I did a lot of swimming. I used to swim nearly a kilometre every other day with all my kit on. Not because it was hard, but to get my body really exercising and to get my heart and lungs wide open, wide open and working hard. Some cycling, I did some cross training on the machines, and basically I did stuff that got me fit, maintained the fitness I had, but moreover didn't injure me. Because if you turn up on selection, huffing and gruffing, bombed out, pumped up like a lunatic, you ain't going to find it very easy. Diet is also important. Now, people are on these bizarre diets, not eating this, not eating that, not eating the other. I'll tell you now, whilst you're on selection, you're going to burn thousands and thousands of calories. So, if you have got a little bit of puppy fat left on your body, I wouldn't worry about it too much. In fact, in December, when I was getting ready for January's selection, I actually ate myself after death. I had a good Christmas, I drank loads, and I put on nearly a stone. Because I knew... Come January, I've been running up and down those hills and I've burned the lot off. And I'll tell you what, I've burnt off that and some. So if you turn up bulging and ripping out of your shirt, pure lean muscle, you're soon going to go downhill. And go downhill you will because you'll burn the muscle because you've got no fat and the calories you'll be able to put into your body there just won't be enough to sustain yourself. And then you've got nothing left. And once you start burning your muscle, you're going to start breaking pretty quickly. So you get there. It's day one. You've been put in a classroom, you've been read the regimental ethos. You sign your disclosure forms, bizarrely enough, and then you start into a series of lessons. Now, they're not just going to bung you straight out on the hills, they want to tick the boxes first. So, you do your map reading lessons, a bit of first aid, and all the stuff you need to know whilst operating alone in the mountains. They also test your fitness, so you do some basic level military tests. You'd be well surprised how many people actually fail some of these tests. And it used to be a bit of a thing in my day when I did selection that guys would turn up just to get Special Forces selection on their paperwork. Nowadays, they hold a briefing course. So week one draws to a close. But before you get into week two, you have to do the feared test, the fan dance. Now, the fan dance really, for some reason, phases people out. All it is, in fact is a tab or a march over a large mountain in Wales. It's 886 metres high. It's called the Penny Fan. Now, you leave from a small car park called the Story Arms by a red phone box. You go up the hill, top of the fan. You come across down the other side, along an old Roman road, to a turnaround point at Torpanto. When you get to Torpanto, you have a drink of water. You set off back again. You go back up the hill via a very steep bit called Jacob's Ladder, back up to the top of the fan, and then back down to Story Arms. Now, the deal is, this is a squatted march. 
So you set off in two ranks, and all you have to do is keep with the instructor. If you stay with the instructor, you pass the march. Now, that's the good side of things. The downside of it is he's going to set off like an absolute maniac. He's going to be up that hill at least halfway, probably before you've even left the door. By the time you catch him up, if you're lucky, you'll see him at the turnaround point. If not, it'll be well past Jacob's ladder and on the way back down before you even get a sniff of him. Now, he's not doing this to mess you up, but what he is doing is put a little bit of psychological pressure on you. He knows that you're looking at him thinking to yourself, I've got to come in with this man. And he knows if he pushes the pace and loses you, you've got two choices. You either really push your pace to catch him or you give up. And what he wants you to do is give up. But the day I did it, he was gone. He was just a speck on the hill. By the time I'd even got my boots pulled up properly, <laughs> I set off. I'm legging it, absolutely legging it. I get to the top of the fan. He's nowhere to be seen. I look down the other side. I can see halfway along the Roman road. He's already down there. By the time I get to the turnaround point, he's already gone past me about 15 minutes ago on his way back. So I'm now thinking to myself, wow, this is going to be impossible. I've got Jacob's Ladder to go. Now, Jacob's Ladder goes almost vertically to the top of the fan. You've got to go up this with your pack, the whole shooting match, and it's no mean feat. I've got to tell you, it's one of the hardest things you do at that stage of selection. You're up that Jacob's Ladder, and every step, your legs are screaming screaming out and by the time you get to the top you've just about had enough but that ain't good enough because by the time you get to the top you know you've only got a few kilometers to go and you need to be with that instructor so when you get to the top of Jacob's Ladder you can't have a rest a brew a cup of tea or a cigarette you've got to get running and running fast you'd better now in reality he's probably going to wait just around the next two or three bends for you but you don't know that you have got no idea. So your best bet is to just get your skates on and go as fast as you can. Now, I remember catching him up probably with about two kilometres to go. But I caught him up, and like I say, the deal is you come in with the pack. That's the end of week one. You don't? Well, it's a train ticket or the long drive home. Bill Freedom get progressively longer and progressively harder, and you're now on the hills on your own. So every march you do, you get in the car park of wherever it is they drop you off, they weigh your kit, they stick it on your back, and the DS will give you a grid. He'll ask you if you're happy, he'll ask you to show it on the map, and you make your way to that spot. When you get there, you'll get given another grid. He'll ask you if you're happy, he'll ask you if you know who you are, he'll ask you to show him on the map, he'll give you another grid. And the deal is, you just keep doing that all day, uphill, round corners, through forests, over lakes, all day until you're done, until he says stop. Now, sometimes you might think, well, oh, this is definitely the last checkpoint, and he'll give you another one. Or he'll set you off. Just when you think it's over, he'll set you off again. He might even call you back. But he's doing it all the time just to give you that psychological kick in the face, just to say, have you got it? Do you really want to be on selection? Do you really want to be in the Special Forces, or are you just bluffing me? By the end of the third week, then, you're in pretty poor repair. You've probably got a few toenails missing, you've definitely got more than your share of blisters, and you've probably got a rash on your back from where your pack's been chaffing up and down. So you won't be the happiest bunny in the bunch. But by the end of that week, you're hitting what's known as test week. Now, test week is a straight pass every day, and you stay on. Fail, you'll get a yellow card, which is a warning, 
and then the next day you're off. So you're allowed a bad day. But don't throw a joker in, because if you throw the joker in, you don't know what's around the corner. So you've just got to give it 100% every day that you're out the traps. So it starts off in a place called Elan Valley. Now, Elan Valley isn't too hilly. But what it is, it's like this marshy, horrible, boggy land. And when you're on it and running and walking, your feet disappear, you're falling over every two seconds, and by now your pack's up to 45, 50 pounds. So it's weighing. It's weighing you down. It's dragging you back. And you spend two or three days on this horrible, moonlight plateaus with this, we call it baby's head, so big tufts of grass, that every footstep, it feels like you're going two forwards and three back. It's absolutely honking. Get through Elan Valley then, and you're back into the hills for your last couple of days. You do a couple of marches, big marches, VW Valley, a valley that just goes up and down. It's the steepest one of the lot. And then you do an Ironman march, again, which is absolutely heinous. Get through that, and you get a day where you get a fairly simple march. After that, the final test is a test called Long Drag. It's about 64 kilometers long, and it encompasses all the land you've covered all week. So it goes all over the Brecon Beacons. You're going to visit the Fan. You're going to visit VW Valley. You're going to visit all these honking places. And the final bit on mine took us all the way around a reservoir called the Talibont Reservoir. And you can see the finish point on the other side. By now, you've been going 15 or 16 hours. You get about 20 hours to do it, but you're never told exactly what you've got. So it's best effort everywhere you go because you just don't know what the cutoff times are. Now, I remember getting to the final cutoff. And I got there, and I'm looking at the DS as if to go, I really, really have had enough today. And do you know what? They didn't play any more games on us then. It was like, you've done the hill phase, well done, get on the truck. But by then, you're still only a number, as far as the DS are concerned. So that is the hills phase of selection. It's extremely hard. You're going to lose a lot of weight. You're going to have a terrible time with your toes, your heels, and your back. You're going to really, really cream in with some of these injuries. And of course, you've got what we call the sword of Damocles above your head all the time. For any reason or excuse, they can get rid of you whenever they like. So if you pass aptitude or the hills, it's on then to what we call, well, after, after you get back to Hereford, you now leave, you leave Wales and you go to Hereford. And you go into what they call a little bit of a pre-training, pre-deployment training before you go to the jungle. But I'm going to tell you about the jungle next time I'm on it. UK, we are no strangers to terrorism. We had umpteen years of the IRA, and now we've got Islamic militants running all over the place. It doesn't give you the greatest of feelings to know that I can't carry a proper weapon here. In fact, I can't carry any weapon. No knives, no guns, no extendable buttons, no electricity. There is nothing I'm allowed to carry in this country which is deemed offensive. So when it comes to things like EDC... We've got to box clever. We've got to think about stuff. And we've got to utilise what we can to give us the best chance should we find ourselves surrounded and in the middle of a terrorist attack. Okay, number one then. EDC for us over here. Prevention is always better than a cure. So before I go anywhere, if I'm planning somewhere that I've got to go that's say maybe like a big sporting event or something like that, I look at what the threat is first. I'm checking my social media all the time just to make sure that I don't miss anything in the build-up to what could possibly be the worst day of my life. That said then, I've still got to go and I've got to carry some gear. So everything I carry goes into my day sack. Now, I've got a really decent day sack from the Crate Club. 
last year sometime. I think it's my own. It's a dragon shell one. Absolutely phenomenal piece of kit. Loads of pouches, loads of bits and pieces. I've got everything in there I need. What can I carry in this country and what can't I? Well, I start off, the day sack itself offers me some protection because inside, at the back, I've got a ballistic plate. It's a flexible one. It's good up for 9mm and it will stop a blade as well. So that's my first, first line of defence in a blade or shooting attack. I either get the thing on and run away, okay, in which case I minimise the chance of getting shot in the back, or I'm using the thing as a shield if I have to go forwards, or if I have to palm off a knife man with it or something like that. I've got something that I know will stand up at least to a blade. So that's number one, a decent day sec. Number two, a flexible ballistic plate. Number three then, I don't go anywhere without a decent torch. Now at the moment, I've got an Olight torch, which is rechargeable, it's one hand operate, it's got a strobe, it is extremely, extremely powerful. This thing in your eyes at night, it's gonna stop you. You're not gonna be able to see me. So my torch is extremely important. And even if I'm not using it to try and defend myself, I might have to look look where I'm going. I might have to go into buildings that have possibly got the electric cut and all that sort of stuff. A torch is extremely important. Next then, communications. You need communications nowadays. Everything is done via communications. Social media and all that sort of stuff, if something goes wrong, it's so important. You can be checking stuff, you can be watching live updates and all the bits and pieces. So with social media, you need spare power. So I've got a power bank. Again, a power bank is extremely important. If you can get two or three in your kit, get two or three in there. But you need not just one fill for your phone, you should have two or three fills for your phone. Some of this stuff can have you hooked up and out the way for two or three days, perhaps. Okay, if it was a really serious one, you might have to go into hiding. You want to know what's going on, and you don't want your phone running out of battery. Phone, goes without saying, but I also carry a spare phone. Just a cheap pay-as-you-talk one with a SIM card in it. That's all that's required. Next then, I need a comprehensive first aid kit. And I also need a few bits and pieces like tourniquets and that, that even if I can't use them, the emergency services, there you go, have them. Utilise them somewhere else. Field dressings, blast dressings, all that sort of stuff, get it all in there, whatever you can carry. If it's going to help with mass honking wounds like gunshot and severed limbs from explosions and that sort of stuff, you need to be saving lives. So stuff that will clot blood and all that sort of game is all in there, all right? And not, like I say, just so it can be used on, on myself, but you may turn up on a scene and find casualties all over the place and medics who have not got enough kit to get them through the day. So if you've got it on you and can you pass it on to somebody else, all is the better for you and everybody else around you. Water. In London, we've had acid attacks and all that sort of stuff going on. So there's always water in my kit. I've always got water to drink and I've also got water that can be used to flush any horrible foreign bodies or acid out of anybody's face. I'll always have my shades in there or some form of glasses that I know if it's going to be people start slinging stuff like that about, at least I can put something on my face and offer my eyes a little bit of protection. Always have some sugary foods in there and probably an energy drink because that sort of stuff, once the shit hits the fan and it all goes wrong, you're hanging out. A bit of sugar can sometimes give you that little bit of inspiration, that little bit of a kick to get you going again. Decent pair of gloves. Now, in London, we've got the underground. If it all goes off in there good time, you need to put something on your hands. You can't just get grabbing hold of hot lumps of metal. You might have to climb through broken glass and all sorts of stuff. Get something to protect your hands. A decent pair of gloves. A mechanic set at minimum. But I do know there's a lot of gloves on the market there will protect you from things like broken glass. And even some of them nowadays will give you a little bit of Kevlar protection should you need to start trying to grip a knife off somebody. And you never know when it might come to that. 
me medication. Make sure you've got plenty of backup medication on you should you end up unable to get back to where you live and get that medication. Allergic to anything, make sure you're carrying anything that can be like, like the insulin and that sort of stuff. Make sure you've got enough to cover you for at least a couple of days. Have a notebook and pen in there. It sounds basic, but you'd be surprised the amount of people nowadays who end up with no power on their phone and no way of recording down around them what's going on. A notebook and pen will work no matter if it's got battery or not. So it's old school, but a notebook and pen always goes in my day sec, I can tell you. On the nicest of days, I always have some sort of warm kit, okay? Now the reason I do this is shock can kill. And people don't recognise that, but shock is a massive killer. And keeping people warm after incidents, when they're all ruffled up and their body temperatures are all over the place, to put a little blanket over them or a fleece jacket or something to make them warm is such a comforting feeling. It can dispel all this shock type stuff and just aid you in making people better. Money. It sounds stupid nowadays when everybody uses their card or a phone to pay for stuff. But if the electric's gone down, if there's no way of paying for stuff, a bit of cash will help. It might be even that you have to bribe someone. You never know, especially if you're travelling abroad. Money is important. You need money. I mean, even in Britain, you can still walk into a payphone if you've got 50p or a pound and make a phone call. So even if everything else communication-wise is gone, if you've got some money in your pocket and some spare change, you can use the phone box. And with that in mind, keep the numbers or the important numbers that you think might save your life close to you, all right? You don't have to put the names down. You just have to know which order they go in. So you're not compromising anybody's safety, but you have got the numbers of the people you need should your phone be blown out of your hand and suddenly you find yourself in a position where you can't talk to anybody anymore. I meant that. I've always got more than one card on me. And why do I do this? Well, it's quite simple. My main bank account... Well, I don't want anybody hacking into that. And people are dipping your pockets and swiping your cards while they're in your pockets nowadays. So you don't want to be in a situation where you've lost your wallet and someone's got access to all your cash, all right? So what I do is I have a pay-as-you-talk type card, like a Monzo or something like that, where I can have a small amount of money to keep me going during the day, and I'll have something that I can feed into that with and back it up. So I've always got two methods of payment on me within my wallet, and I'm backed up with cash. It's extremely important that you keep this sort of stuff with you because if you haven't got anything on the day of the race and it goes wrong or you need to sort yourself out, in London, you can't even jump on a bus nowadays unless you've sorted your cash out. There's all sorts of optionals you can also consider, things like plastic cuffs. If you don't want plastic cuffs, that obvious, just take with you some normal, some normal sort of like zip ties type stuff so that you have got the capability of restraining someone should you need to. Now, that's not aggressive, and there's nothing illegal about carrying a zip tie. But we all know if we put three together, we can quite successfully restrain someone long enough until the police or the authorities get there. So worth thinking about. The field, I always have a compass. And because I have a compass and it's only small, it stays in my bag anyway. So you'll be saying to me, well, Phil, you don't want to be cutting around town with a compass. Well, it's not just a compass, actually. I've got a little magnifying glass on my compass that I can read stuff with. There's all sorts of added bonuses to just keeping that compass in your EDC. There's lots more stuff that you and I can think of to put in your EDC to aid you on the day of a race. One thing's for sure, though. Cut about with nothing, and if it all goes wrong, you are well and truly up the creek without the paddle. And you know what I mean, don't you? To prepare is preparing to fail. Clichéd but never a truer word spoken. So to that end, 
what do us Brits do when we need to do some serious training? And when I say serious training, we've still got guys deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan doing it privately, working for the private military companies. They need to be trained. They need to do their courses and they need to be competent in the weapon systems that they might be asked to use when they go overseas. So how do we do it? Well, there's a number of ways we can do it in the UK. You can book yourself onto a course here or you can go to Europe and find yourself a course or you can get the same thing online. Outside of using airsoft weapons in the UK, it is extremely difficult. Now you can use rifle ranges such as Bisley, but most of it's just target practice. There's no moving ranges, there's no type tactical firing, there's none of this sort of stuff available here live, which makes it extremely difficult to get anything done. One of the in places at the moment then is Bulgaria. Well, why Bulgaria? Well, Eastern Europeans really, really don't have the same problems as we do with gun control and gun laws. So it's a lot easier to source places where you can use these arms and they're readily available. One place in particular, just outside Sevilla, in a place called Plodiv. And it's called the 360 Shooting Range. It's Europe's most advanced training and shooting centre. Fair, I suspect there's a few others claim that as well. They reckon they've got over 50 weapons systems. And they've certainly got all the gear. They've got pistols, they've got longs, they've got Eastern Bloc weapons, they've got more more up-to-date type stuff like we have, M4 platforms, all that sort of stuff. They've got the lot. So weapon selection over there isn't so much of an issue. Pistol-wise, they're going to have your Glocks and your SIGs. They're also going to have a few of your other hand cannon type stuff. In the site itself, they claim they've got over 50 weapon systems, different types, that is. Point of view, to be honest, if you're an operator, you need to know how to operate an AK-47. And you should verse yourself in anything on an M4 platform. Outside of that, your Glocks, your SIGs, those sorts of weapons, you should know them off by heart. So it's not so much a case of learning weapons over there. It's being able to utilise what they've got. What courses can you do over there? Well, the 360 range in particular says it will take you from complete beginner all the way up to operator. What do I mean by operator? Well... Their definition is probably slightly different to mine, but they're talking live drills, walking drills, CP type stuff, a few car drills, they've got a driving range. So there are there are practical CQB type stuff you can do there. They don't really have a killing house, not what I'd call a killing house anyway, but they do have some CQB stuff. You can move around cones, you can shoot through windows and all that sort of stuff. So there is a tactical element there, health and safety absolutely huge on it so the first thing you do when you turn up at any of these sites is you're going to get briefed on safety their records of health and safety actually are quite decent they don't tend to have a lot of accidents but they do they do like i say take it extremely seriously there's always decent first aid on on site and there's always a decent first aider there to back up the kit that they've got civilians as well as armed forces so you could find yourself on a beginner's course with somebody who's done absolutely nothing anywhere whatsoever Or you could find yourself at the top end on a course with someone who's served with some of the elite units across the region. And even, like I say, there's SAS guys I know go there all the time. There's SBS over there. There's Tier 1 and Tier 2 operators from all over this country converging on Bulgaria because we can't do it here. As well as just doing the weapon handling and the range stuff, they also offer extensive first aid packages and they also do Myra type work. So anything in hostile environments, they'll cover at this site. They've got accommodation on site, and it is 
It's probably one of the most comprehensive sites in the whole of Europe, if not just Europe. It certainly is one that anybody can get on if they need to. Like I say, I'm going to be there this weekend, and I'm going to be doing some stuff with their police force. They've got, they can put up over 60 people. They've also got classrooms, they've got projectors, slides, televisions, and all that sort of stuff. So it really is a comprehensive place to go. Locations to go shooting in Bulgaria. But now we're talking a bit more limited. There certainly isn't anywhere where you can do the tactical stuff. Most of the ranges they have over there, outside of Plotdiv, will cater for just your gallery-type shooting, where you'll be stood one end, you'll be controlled, you'll be loaded and unloaded, you won't be holstering your weapon, and it'll all be put out neatly in front of you, and you'll be, you'll be pretty much restricted to doing what they want. Most of these rangers also couple themselves with shotguns, and actually when I saw the standard of shotgunning out there and some of the practices they were doing, I was quite impressed. Especially at one site, they had like a, an almost an Olympic team there, which was ridiculous. They were shooting all sorts of skeets from all different angles. They were bouncing them off the floor, sticking them over their heads, and they were knocking these things out of the sky for a laugh. In the UK, if you even just want to use a shotgun, you've got to have a license, somewhere to keep it, somewhere to use it, somewhere to travel with it. It's an absolute nightmare. So Bulgaria, like I say, has become an extremely popular destination for people in this country who like guns. I'm on here then, I'll take you over to Spain, which is where I'm going the week after next to do some shooting there. Now, although they're not as lenient as the Bulgarians or the Eastern Europeans in general, you can still get quite a lot done in Spain, even if you're only restricted to using 9mm on most of the locations. That's about it for this week. What have we covered? Well, we've had a look at the first part of selection, the hills. We've had a good tear up around, Europe, around Bulgaria looking at the ranges. So I looked at EDC, which is extremely important nowadays and something actually over here that a lot of people pay lip service to. You never see them paying lip service on the day of the race when they're trying to get out of there in a hurry, do you? You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.